1: Reading rainbow, reading rainbow, reading rainbow, reading
0: rainbow. 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 Alright, it's going. All right, cool. Um, yeah the whole the whole reason I wanted to do this uh this episode was because I used to read a lot as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like I was the I was I was always very proud of the fact that I always read above my reading grade level. It's one of those. (laughs) When you're a kid, you get proud of weird things. Like sure. it, like I was, the two things I was the most proud of uh, in elementary school was that I read Jurassic Park <laughs> nice. in second grade Same. And, that, <laughs> and that I could do a, a standing long jump that was like four feet. Like I was really good at jumping. Oh,
1: like the presidential <laughs> fitness
0: thing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. I was really good at that standing long jump. And those are the two, like that's what I hung my hat on. Like well, if I had to meet new people at a birthday party or something, <laughs> that's... <laughs> that was that was what I told people. I feel
1: like that would work as an adult too. You could whip that out, like when yeah. I was in fourth grade. Let me tell. Oh, you well, I, or
0: just now, just <laughs> like if I'm just you know mingling and uh, you know, and I ask someone, "So what's your standing long jump look like?"
1: <laughs> yeah, go for it. I'm sure mm-hmm. that's a great icebreaker.
0: <laughs> that if, if, if depending on how intoxicated, because if, if, if people are too drunk, then it then it get, turns into a contest, sure. and then. Things are getting knocked over.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't want to embarrass new friends by yeah. totally owning them with your long jump.
0: Right. So, so yeah. For So, I read books for a while. And then there got to be a point where my ADD uh, – well, ba- there gets to be a point where chapter books up to a certain point are mostly funny because mm-hmm. they want to keep kids engaged. And sure. then chapter books, I call them, of course, because they're not novels yet. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, like – and then there gets to be a certain point where, like, the books you're reading in school and sort of the books that are recommended by Newbery Awards or whatever, like, they're kind of more serious and they're kind of actually about things. And um, and then as someone with sort of ADD and someone who didn't take anything seriously as a kid, there, my reading sort of dropped off at some point during middle school. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would, st- I would still read, but not nearly as uh, voraciously as I used to. And then pretty much you know, I, I read, you know, uh, books every now and then, but it wasn't, it wasn't an all the time, always have a book going sort of a thing until recently I lost my, uh, my iPod got stolen. And so now I've just been, you know, having like three hours of commuting every day Mm -hmm. where I've been able to read. So this entire year I've, you know, I've read like, you know, three times as many books as I would normally read. And it's been really, uh, it's, it's been really rewarding so I wanted to like go back and watch some of the movies that the books, books were based on sure. what I, I'm curious about like what, what are your reading habits
1: um well i i guess in general throughout my whole life I've been a pretty committed reader that was just a weird thing I decided as a young kid was going to be important to me um, which i think you kind of after a certain age, you kind of have to make that decision, right? Yeah, it's so easy. I mean, like you were saying, it's so easy to just stop doing it after a certain age. But for whatever reason, when I was younger, I I wanted to be the kind of person who could call themselves well read. So
0: it, was there a person like in your li- life that you like look to and like, yeah. oh, I want to be like that person?
1: Yeah, uh, both my parents read, but they my dad just reads like dad nonfiction a lot and my mom reads like John Grisham novels Um, Mm -hmm. but I have an aunt who is I would say very very well read like the classics and then also a lot of contemporary fiction and I really looked up to her as a kid Um, that's what I wanted to be when I was 12 I wanted to be like a 50 year old woman who's read all of Jane Austen because I was a weird kid I guess so um, that's that, a
0: that's a really endearing that's a really endearing <laughs> trait for a twelve year old oh
1: good I'm glad it's not just incredibly nerdy and
0: no well, let me know it's incredibly nerdy <laughs> don't get me own but there's a thing there's a thing where um that it's such a noble thing to aspire to as mm-hmm. opposed to like i don't know when I was twelve i I wanted to be a famous actor <laughs> like you that's know like
1: noble. I think like, that's like, well, totally it's, worthwhile.
0: I, I wanted to, but the fame, I wanted people to like me and ask questions <laughs> <laughs> and ask me questions in magazines. Like to be a person who is well-read seems like a whole different uh, sort sort of goal for yourself.
1: Sure. It's less ambitious though than just being famous. It's easier yeah. to uh, obtain. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so what, what kind of books, uh, what kind of books do you read or what kind of books did you read as a child and? Well, Tell me about your taste in books.
1: Sure. Um, so when I, was, when I was younger, my tastes were pretty in, – in two camps, basically. It was the stuff that young kids kind of read in school, like the classic young, young kid books, like a lot of Roald Dahl. Um, I read The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White, which is, I think, another kind of very classic little kids book. And, and then the other half is just all Star Wars books. Oh yeah! For a pretty significant chunk of my middle school life, all I read was Star Wars: The Expanded Universe, and I remember feeling so proud of myself for being able <laughs> to go to the like adult science fiction section of the sure. library and like check out six of these books and just read them over a two week span. It's like, oh, I'm an adult because I'm reading these books and not you know these little kid books in the kids section. But yeah, it was hilariously. Well-
0: I I think that's actually interesting, especially in terms of adaptation in that, like, those are so much, like, if you want to read adult sci-fi, and I really don't know enough about the sci-fi genre to say, like, where the Star Wars Expanded Universe books rank. Like, I'm sure they rank above movie novelizations, but Mm -hmm. below, like, you know, serious sci-fi or whatever. But, like, as far as their literary value, I don't really know what they have. but. Just the fact that you have all of these ships, you know what they all look like, mm-hmm. you know what these worlds look like, you know, like it's already art designed for you in your yeah. head. Mm-hmm. I, there, whenever I would try to read like fantasy or sci-fi, you know, a kind of a series like that, but wasn't based on a movie, it would get to a big description of a ship and I would find myself so challenged to like conjure up what is being described to me. Yeah. Um, and it's so, it's so, it's so helpful to just be like, oh yeah, no, this is Luke. I'm, I know Luke. right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yep. that's an X-wing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know what that looks like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's definitely, I, I mean, as a kid, I just love Star Wars too. And I, I remember yeah. trying to read other science fiction and, and probably running into that exact same problem where it's, I'm not familiar with any of this stuff. This is boring. Where, where's Han Solo? Bring him back. Let me go right. read all of those books again. So, so that was me as a kid, and then I guess when I got to high school, um, w- which I think is the age kind of when you have to make that decision to just keep reading, I decided, okay, I need to read, well, first I need to read the classics, so high school is when I read a lot of, like, Austin and Jane Eyre and the Brontes and, and all that stuff, and then as I got older and became more aware of contemporary fiction, I've just slowly moved through the twentieth century and now I, I read a lot of current novels, um, like Jonathan Franzen and Alice Monroe and those those types of authors who are currently living and currently publishing. Um, but I've been I'm pretty happy that I've been able to maintain some kind of reading life, uh, for for as long as I've been literate, so it's been
0: It's been important to me. Yeah, You're so true. It's so true what you say about that, having to make that choice in high school. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
0: it's, there's something that like, once you hit high school, suddenly you're like, you are, you are given your free time. Yep. (laughs) Like they hand you the free time and they Mm -hmm. say, do what you will. Um, We expect you to socialize more. We expect you to be on your own more, to drive around with your friends more or whatever. Like you really have to. Like carve out a piece of your life yep. that 's like i 'm going to be sitting in my room and reading
1: yep that 's really true, and then, as an adult that 's even harder right because free yeah. ti- you, you get to choose your free time and then also your free
0: time evaporates so um, it's it, i mean of all the of all the things that you know I should feel guilty for for wasting <laughs> my time. Like, I, like, I just, I should not be on Twitter as much as I am. I should not, you know, just be aimlessly going around YouTube as much as I do. Or just, like, playing Spelunky for, for three hours in a row. Oh,
1: my God. I was playing Spelunky right before you called.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's it's just this sort of, like, resting state. It's yeah. just, it's a nice thing to do. But it's like, oh, God, there's so much. But of all of those things that I do do at home, it's so hard for me to just sit down in my home and read. Yeah. I. It's, it's usually for me reading is I'm on the go. I'm going somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I go through through periods where I, I read a lot and then there's just a dry spell where I can't like get myself into it because you're right. It's just very like, okay, I'm just going to sit here quietly for two hours and just read this book. Uh, and, and it can feel kind of overwhelming when you're just not in the right mindset for it. That's why the transit thing is such a great – opportunity for it because you're just kind of stuck in this place and it's boring and maybe your phone battery is dying and now I have this book with me so I might as well you know do something productive for the next hour or whatever but yeah
0: yeah um so uh, do you remember like the first movie or at least maybe the first notable movie you saw where you read the book beforehand and you sort of wanted to see it because you had read the book and you wanted to see the movie version
1: Yes. So I, like I said before, I read a lot of Roald Dahl as a kid, which I think is pretty common. Uh, So I saw the movie Matilda after I had read the book. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, And and I remember, I can't, you know, I wish I had looked up when this movie came out, but I know it was in the 90s and I know that I was still in elementary school when I saw it. But I I remember being so excited to see it because I love this book and then feeling so disappointed by the ending of it because it was different from the way the book ended.
0: How does the book bu- the how does the book end again?
1: So, you know, she the character Matilda, she gets these these weird ESP powers because she's, you know, this is a Roald doll book, so she's a abused child in some way, and, and she gets to have these special powers to kind of help her cope with her life. And right. the book ends, you know, she's adopted into this loving family and she loses her powers, the implication being, okay, she has a happy life now. So she doesn't need this coping mechanism anymore. Cause she's loved finally, but the movie ends with her still having the powers and also having this loving family. So it kind of the movie version of it loses that, that, that like child life lesson about, you know, you're happy. So you don't get this magical gift yeah. anymore. And I just remember feeling so like robbed <laughs> when I was a little kid. Uh, even, at, even
0: at that age, like, that was important to you? That was, like, an important part of the book?
1: Yeah, I, I probably couldn't have explained why. Like, as an adult, I understand now thematically what that means, that she loses her powers. I, as a kid, I probably couldn't have told you that. I just knew that it was different from um, what was in the book and I was just, like, flabbergasted that you could make a movie based off of a book and not, like, tell the exact same story. So that's that's what I was more reacting to as a kid.
0: I didn't even think about Matilda. I think I think that is also my first movie I saw in theaters that, yeah. like, I'd read the book beforehand.
1: Probably for 90, for people in our generation, I wouldn't be surprised if that that's a common first one.
0: Yeah, it's, I honestly, I mean, I haven't seen Matilda in, you know a decade or if not you know if not 20 years but sure. like I I I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually one of the better role doll because uh, I remember it being dark mm-hmm. I remember it being fan like having a magical realism to it yes. and um it had you know and so it didn't like water down that aspect and it was still in the point <laughs> it was still in the point where like not everything like children's films were still kind of had their own identity it wasn't mm-hmm. just like well how do we cram this into harry potter right um and so like it kind of actually just told the story it it didn't have a lot of like well then here's the you know the wacky comic relief character right. and here's the this and that and it was able to i th- I recall it being more episodic which you World know, dolls novels all are very episodic kind of mm-hmm yeah, that's that's probably good. I should, I should. That'd be interesting to rewatch.
1: Yeah, I remember that, and and now that we've been talking about it, I I remember seeing James and the Giant Peach as well around that oh, sure. time, that same time span, and and that one I, I I have less of a good memory about, but I also remember that it maintains that kind of unnerving essence that's in the novel, which I really appreciate in in kids' books and kids' movies when they when they trust children to be able to grapple with these darker themes and not just water everything down with this, like, goofy, candy-colored story. Uh, right. Which is probably why I love *Roll Dahl as a kid. Um, but the, those two movies, uh, I think, were probably the first adaptations that I, I saw as a kid of books that I, I had also read.
0: I think *Roll*. I, I mean, I wasn't very critical of films at the time, so <laughs> I think looking back, like, I think James the Giant Peach probably isn't nearly as good as the book or whatever. But I, I think at the time, like, it was... It was honestly – I went through a lot of my life before I even understood the concept of really not liking a movie. Yeah. Like I didn't go to the movies very often. My parents weren't big movie goers and I didn't – you know, we didn't rent movies all that often. And so generally my life, like watching movies, was I'd watch the same – like the VHS tapes we'd have. I'd watch those over and over again. Almost, I think probably in a similar way that I play Spolunky over and over again, where it's just like it's a comforting thing to sit down in front of Men in Black for the fifteenth mm-hmm. time and yep. just know all the beats and just to feel through, go through it. Um, so I don't, I don't, I was not critical of anything like that, so I don't remember like yeah you know, ever being disappointed. But I think probably Rolled Doll books, which were you know really important to me. Uh, probably they tickled the same part of my brain that I like, the reason I like, like, Tim Burton movies. Yeah. And it's, it's a shame that when the two finally came together, it was so terrible.
1: (laughs) What did Tim Burton do that was a role doll?
0: He did the remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Oh,
1: God, that's right. Oh, I just completely blocked that from my memory. (laughs) And I Uh, saw that, too. (laughs) mm Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I saw that in theaters. It was real bad
1: <laughs> that's another that's another book adaptation of uh, the Gene Wilder one that I was a big fan of
0: as a yeah. kid no, I definitely, the I definitely saw the, I definitely saw the movie first though mm-hmm. which it, it colors it it's yeah. i mean you can other than and the books are and movie they're different enough mm-hmm. that uh I, I didn't like push the movie into my reading of the book uh, very much other than like just imagining that Charlie looked like the actor who played Charlie, Buckley, Right, you know, um, so what, what, uh, what's like, uh, <laughs> I, I saw this. So have you ever read a farewell to arms? I have in, in high
1: school. So years so, ago. Yeah.
0: So farewell to arms, like a lot of Ernest Hemingway novels, it's a very sort of, uh, depressing sort of novel about, a you know, sort of the lost generation mm-hmm. and sort of the displacement of world war one. And there's ostensibly like a romantic center to it. These two people holding on to each other, but, um, the, but the actual way it plays out is just kind of sad. Right. He, he, or he just sort of devolves into alcoholism and it's, I mean, obviously it has a tragic ending, but even like just the way they hold on to each other, it doesn't, it doesn't feel romantic at all. Yeah. Uh, It just kind of feels desperate. Um, And so I saw the 1932 adaptation of A Farewell to Arms uh, just recently, like a couple weeks ago. And it's one of the most astounding adaptations I've ever seen because it is so romantic. It is (laughs) so, like, it's just full of the joy of love. And it keeps the tragic ending, but it's a, you know, a romantic tragic ending. It's not just... Sort of, uh, he walks off into the. He just sort of leaves the hospital and walks away, and and it's just oh well, that happened with that sort of muted tone that all of you know Hemingway's prose had, where it's just all like the 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 explosion to, that destroys his leg and him having another uh, him having another wine sort of have the same uh, emotion behind them, but um, it's it's
1: colored in this very romantic way as opposed yeah. to.
0: Yeah. There, and and it's, and it's really inventive. And so this is this is a 1932 adaptation. The the novel came out in 29. Mm-hmm. So it's a it, at the time it wasn't an adaptation of classic literature. It was an adaptation of a contemporary novel. Right. Um, and it's partially based off the play, which was adapted from the novel. So I don't know how much of this is the movie and how much of the play. But there's so many like amazing inventive scenes. Like there's a meat cute. Like there'd never be a meat cute in an Ernest Hemingway novel but there's this wacky scene where there's a there's a raid and then they're like running and then they end up and he was like se- trying to seduce a prostitute and then like he ends up running and he ends up with the nurse in in a shelter and he's drunk so he thinks that she's the prostitute still and, <laughs> like it's this really great scene what a where... cute
1: way to meet someone <laughs> yeah, I it's... thought you were a prostitute <laughs>
0: He, well, yeah, because you know he's drunk and he's giving this prostitute a lecture about the history of architecture sure. using her the, using the arc of her heel of her high heel mm-hmm. as like an example, oh, God. and then so he runs out. He's still holding the high heel and he's trying to like put it on this other woman's foot, thinking it's J. And he's just staring at her leg, and he's like, architecture. The arch tells you it's one of the oldest arts in the world. Just the same way as yours is the oldest profession. <laughs> and The nurse is like, what the hell? But like you know they, and it's. It's really lusty in a way. I mean it's it's a it's not technically pre-code. The Hays code was like 1930, but the the real enforcement of the Hays code didn't start until like I think 35. Mhm. So, it's it's pre-code to the point where like you don't see them having sex, but you see them pre having sex and you see them post having sex and he's even able to say in a coded way that like he was surprised that she was a virgin. Like there's but, like, there's a, there's a lot of it that you don't expect from a movie from the 30s, and it's got this amazing energy, and it's a really great – and I I really like Farewell to Arms. I think that's a really great novel, but it's it's one of the most astounding adaptations I've ever read because it's such a portrayal mm. <laughs> of what A Farewell to Arms is about. Like, A Farewell to Arms is about these the, – the novel is about these people being, like, crushed by World War One and just all hope being gone – and this is about two people uh you know their love sustaining them through hard times you know
1: right well, it sounds like you, you're it's a betrayal but a betrayal that you're not necessarily offended by the, no, at not least at all. the way that you're talking about it
0: i am I, it's a great i I think it's a genuinely like great film and I, I was is have you ever have you ever seen an adaptation that is just such a different take that from the novel that you don't even you don't even register it as a betrayal. You just, it's, oh, wow. Like that's, that's, that's a really (laughs) like that's, they, they went somewhere completely different. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. I I think that happens a lot with, um, older literature that's been adapted just multiple times. Uh, so I, I've seen several different versions of like Pride and Prejudice, for instance, because it's just a classic and every generation has to have, their pride and prejudice movie. And with stuff like that, that's been just adapted. You, each adaptation, I feel like is trying to make its own kind of mark on the same story. So it's sure. not just, it's
0: all, it all pride and Pre- in that way. It's almost like Shakespeare.
1: Yeah. Shakespeare would be another good example of this, right. Where maybe the character names are all the same, but the kind of tone of it changes depending on what decade it was shot in. Uh, So I think something like that can be really interesting. I would be curious to see this A Farewell to Arm, this adaptation.
0: I I, I highly recommend it. Um, What's also funny is so uh, David O. Selznick, who was the producer who put together like Gone with the Wind, Mm -hmm. he was obsessed with A Farewell to Arms. um, And eventually like in the 60s, he made it with Rock Hudson. (laughs) (laughs) And it's this like nearly three hour epic and I started to watch it. I only like got like ten minutes in, but like, <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's like like the other thing about the other thing about the Farewell to Arms the the thirties version is it's it's under ninety minutes. Like it's it's a tight movie. Yeah, for, it's a like it, two
1: hundred page novel, right? Yeah. it's really short.
0: Yeah, but yeah, so like, so like it it just gets to the meat of it, and it doesn't, you know, and it it excludes, you know, some of the various scenes in which he's getting drunk with his friend sure. of which of which there are always so many uh in Hemingway books but like and, but it, it just gets to the meat of it and just tells a tight story whereas David O. Selznick's 60s version <laughs> like this is the most elaborate right. like like 70 million dollar uh epic uh you know nearly three hours long it just opens with it opens with just like 5 minutes of credits with various like amuse- amazing like beautiful landscape shots uh of of like the the Vienna countryside and stuff like that or no I guess they're in Italy. they're in Italy they're but they're fighting the Austrians so it's like just the Italian countryside. Mm-hmm. Um so it's just these very two
1: opposite ways of, of Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't
0: I wanted to watch the other one all the way but I couldn't do it.
1: Yeah, 3 hours, that's big.
0: Could you tell like uh so I saw the um uh, oh, shit. What's the actress's name? Uh, in
1: in what movie? Keira, the
0: Keira, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, Kira right, exactly. Knightley. The in... Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. a while ago, like when it first came to video. I don't remember much about it. What, like, how how do they do it different? Do they uh, portray the characters different, or is it just like the tone? Or um,
1: so the two main Pride and Prejudice movies that I that I've seen. To, that I can talk well enough about are the BBC miniseries that they did with Colin Firth in the 90s and the Kira Knightley movie. Sure. Uh, and so the BBC version is just this, vi- it's like, I don't know, eight, eight or 10 hour long episodes. And it's just exactly beat for beat what happens in the novel. I mean, all of the dialogue comes straight from the novel, everything chron- chronologically follows. The events of the book, uh, and there, maybe they add like two or three extra scenes between Darcy and Elizabeth. But uh, it's just basically watching the book play out on screen. And the Keira Knightley version, you know, it's a two hour movie. So they obviously just have to cut a lot of content. And the, the, the thing that they play up more, and I think that this is probably true for a lot of these classical adaptations of these films famous uh, stories with a romance at the center is a, in the Kira Knightley version. They just play up the romance angle. That's just the the focus and, and the main thrust and everything kind of falls by the wayside. Like the friendships and the family dynamics are just not important. Right. It's just these two people are, are beautiful and, and they're <laughs> in love and, and that's what you're getting, um, which is fine. I mean, honestly, I, I feel like that's what when people think of Pride and Prejudice, that's kind of what, you think of right it's Uh this romantic story um so i i like both versions you know um i probably prefer the the long adaptation because it just allows for a lot more interesting content but if you know if you only have two hours why not why not watch this goofy pride and prejudice
0: do you like like really faithful adaptations
1: it depends you know um because i I was thinking about this and, and you mentioned betrayal of adaptations and I wouldn't necessarily call this a betrayal, but something that I really like, an adaptation that goes a different way from the book is uh, the Tinker Tailor Sol- Soldier Spy movie. Oh,
0: yeah, I wanted to ask you about those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, tell me about that.
1: So the the book and the movie I, I both absolutely love, um, but they're very kind of tonally different. And I think it, it's basically impossible unless you, you do – a just beat for beat adaptation for your book and your movie to, to share the same tone anyway, just because they're two different mediums. And, that, and that's like a- already they're going to be different because they're just the film and books are just different from each other. Right. right. Um, but Tinker Tail or Soldier Spy, kind of like your a farewell to arms example, they, the book and the movie, they focus on two different things where the book is much more interested in kind of, the, the procedure of you know it's it's this book about trying to find a mole in the the British spy agency. So the the, the book follows the the procedure of of the detective work so much more closely. Um, it's much much more about like the the bureaucracy um, behind this organization and, and spy organizations in the seventies and kind of that that interplay between the British and the Americans and, and the Russians or the Soviets. So it, it has that kind of very dry. Uh, Procedural aspect to it. I mean, it's it's a great book. I absolutely love it uh, because it, it it's so unlike other spy thrillers where sure. it's not intentionally trying to, to lead you into these cliffhanger scenarios. It's just very straightforward and um, in that way. And the movie, because it just doesn't have the same time to work with, it, it kind of ignores the procedure and is much more about these men and just this changing atmosphere where these these men kind of reached their peak during World War II when when spies and men could be men and and there's a lot of lines about that in the movie and now it's the 70s and Gary Oldman is like decrepit and just this old man with these thick glasses and he's just kind of sad and and wandering around i mean he still he still gets to win at the end but it's very clear that this is the sun is setting on this type of character, right? So uh, the the movie is much more about that, that kind of theme of like male friendships and relationships and power. Um, So I think it's an interesting, like if you only have so much time in your movie to work with, I I think it's almost probably always better to just decide, okay, like I enjoy this theme from the book and that's what I want to represent versus trying to just make, a faithful adaptation because like unless you just have a mini series to work with you're never going to be faithful in you know a short time span so like just just forget it and just pick a theme and run with it and it'll probably be more interesting than like just a straight shot by shot remake of the book
0: yeah i i think yeah it's they're definitely like you said they're different mediums and they're i think the primary problem a lot of adaptations have is is that they're consumed differently, Mm -hmm. Um, which is like, I'm reading Clockers right now. It's this Richard Price novel. It's sort of, it was partially like the inspiration for The Wire. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very much like that sort of milieu where it, it goes back and forth between a homicide detective and a drug dealer And you learn about all of the, uh, you know, inner workings of of both systems and how they collide and it's got – but like The Wire, it's not just a procedural. It has really strong characters and arcs and like really exciting, you know, storylines and stuff like that. Um, And as you're – and I'm, you know, I've been reading this over the past, you know, week, maybe uh, two weeks and – You just sort of live in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're you're not constantly thinking about it at all times, but, like, every once in a while, my thoughts will go back to strike. And I'm, like, it's it's more like a TV show, actually. It's kind of surprising it took so long for, like, a Game of Thrones to happen. (laughs) Because it kind of just feels like that's a natural way to adapt a book is to make a a TV show out of it. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the way you're reading a book when you're just sort of working through it over the course of a week or two weeks is – you're just living with it and you're like, oh my god, so I wonder what's going to happen because it seems like he's on to him and I don't – and, and and uh, you know, you're you're just getting through it and you – yeah, you're kind of living in this tone whereas a, a film you sit down – I mean, you can pause it. You know, if you're at home, you can pause it. You can go do other stuff. You can return to it. But it's really meant to be consumed in one sitting. Right. Um, And it's it's just about the sensation of that one sitting as opposed to – giving you all of this information for you to sort of wade through and to dive in and to sort of live in. Um, I, I think, I think short stories end up being uh, work, working much better for uh, film adaptations. Like a lot of really great sci-fi movies and a lot of like, like film noir movies are all based on like short stories right. that, as opposed to uh, like long novels. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause you have the framework that you can then build your own, ideas off of versus having this like in the Game of Thrones example, you could never, I I mean, you, you probably could make that into one movie, but it would never satisfy anyone, right? Both the fans of the books and then just regular people, because it would just be the most rushed thing imaginable. Um, That's interesting. I never, I've never thought about TV maybe being a better medium to adapt books. I guess it would depend on the book, right? Um, right. Something like Game of Thrones, where it's just a sprawling story, that makes sense. But yeah. like in the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy example, although I knew I know that they did do a BBC Yeah, I was going to ask miniseries. if you ever saw the
0: mini series.
1: Um, I have. I've seen. I think the very first episode of it uh, with Alec Guinness, um, and so I, I can't. I can't say a lot about it. I know that uh, my boyfriend had. I guess my fiance. Sorry, um, has watch that as well as the movie. And and from what he said, the miniseries follows the book much more closely, which makes sense, right? Right. You just have the time to do it. Um, But I I think, honestly, I would prefer the film version of it just because, like, once you've read the book, you've read the book, I don't necessarily need to see it recreated on screen. Um, I think it's more interesting to To see what a filmmaker can take from the story and how they kind of interpret it in their their own way. Um, I don't necessarily need this like slavish adaptation yeah. of it. That,
0: that's how you end up with the Watchmen.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a um, an interesting one. I God, I loved that movie when I yeah. saw it. I did, yeah. But I I also wasn't. I, I read the graphic novel because the movie was coming out. So I didn't have this, like, okay. weird, like, this attachment to Alan Moore in any way. I mean, I enjoyed the graphic novel a lot. I thought it was really, really excellently done. Um, and I still like the movie, even though, you know, they made all these weird changes to it. Uh, but but since then, since my, my college days, I, I've become less and less forgiving of Zack Snyder. So I would probably hate it now, honestly, if I watched it, but...
0: Yeah, I, 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 I kind of hated it. Um, <laughs> there's, it's... Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, like, Watchmen is such – it's about comic books. Right. And it operates via the way comic books do. And it has a very um, – it's something I never realized until I, like, read this essay about it. But it has a really restrained style, actually, because every page of, of Watchmen is nine panels. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't do big splash pages. It doesn't do a lot of different things. It's just – it's these nine panels throughout. And – it's it's actually like if you look at the the form the formal like aspects of that graphic novel, it's the opposite of like Zack Snyder, which is all just spectacle and crazy and slowing down and speeding up and making these perfect little uh, tableaus and these like beautiful images, um, as opposed to and as opposed to just like telling this kind of story in a rather restrained way. Right. But it's also it's about comic books. It's, it uses the form of comic books to comment on comic books. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things where why would you adapt that to a different medium if it's not... A, right. like It would have to be such a... I, for me, to enjoy a Watchmen movie, it would have to be about films.
1: Right. You would have to carry that same kind of structure over. Yeah, I, I guess... I mean, this kind of approaches an interesting problem where I think the hardest adaptations are those of these very either cult or are just very fan kind of beloved stories because then it's just impossible because you need to do everything you need to recreate perfectly the book or the graphic novel for the fans but you also have to make it like still be watchable um so like weirdly actually i think the the Harry Potter series might be the best example of how, of like book adaptations or, or how to do them correctly uh, sure
0: as far as like that, i mean there's also a school of thought you could say well i'm gonna make an i'm gonna make the film i'm gonna make the work the best work it can possibly be and then and it's gonna have its own fan base because it is what it is and i'm not gonna worry about its existing
1: fan but can, like do you can you think of anything that that anyone that just did that with like a really famous like beloved fan property like any
0: examples? Uh, no. <laughs> no, because because the the realities are money. Yeah. Like the rea- like I'm sure there's a hundred filmmakers out there who if if there was no such thing as money and everyone got to make any movie they wanted to would make really weird subversive Star Wars movies. Right. But like the no one, no one at Fox or I guess now Disney. Or and or Lucas Arts or whatever, like none of them are going to ever let anyone make a weird subversive star. Even with their plan of making a Star Wars movie every year, right. like, oh, none God. of them are going to be weird subversive. Like I remember when they announced they were doing a Star Wars movie every year, I started brainstorming as just sort of like a thought exercise. I'm like, so if you could just make a Star Wars movie that w- had nothing to do with the lore and had nothing to do with it, you're completely free. You're just in the universe. I don't know. I was thinking like, what kind of movie would I make? And there's a there's a movie uh called White Material by uh Claire Denis and it's this French African film about this uh coffee owner like this coffee plantation owner in Africa in an Af- unnamed African country that's in the brink of civil war and she's sort of just in denial about like everyone is fleeing the country everyone with money like her is leaving but she's sort of staying put um and it's sort of about like just her denial as to what her actual place, you know, in, as far as like imperialism and so like that, what her place in that country is. Um and, and, and there's these, you know, bands of child soldiers who are like, who are living on the plantation, you know um, unseen and everything's sort of closing in. And it's just, the whole movie is about this uh, is about, you know, coming to this confrontation that, you know, is going to happen. It's about building dread. <laughs> and I was like, I'd love to do a movie like that. <laughs>
1: just, like, a random person in, like, in the Star Wars universe. Like, let's just tell this whole story from like, this guy's perspective. Like what,
0: like, what if the Tusken Raiders were displaced <laughs> <laughs> Were displaced First Nations people? Right. And, like, the chickens were coming home to roost on right. Tatooine. I mean, maybe
1: <laughs> that'll happen. If they want to do one of these every year, There's, there's got to be space for that, right? Yeah. Um, that would, that could be potentially interesting.
0: I think it was on the... It might it might not have been on Idle Thumbs, but it was some podcast I listened to. They were talking about, like, the Spider-Man movies, like how Sony has to keep making Spider-Man movies. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what, what, what if Sony just says, like, fuck it, we're going to spend no money on it, we're going to give the property to Lars von Trier.
1: I mean, <laughs> like, I, I hope that something like that eventually happens with these, like, big-ticket properties, because otherwise, God, like... The next couple of years in, in movies are just going to be kind of depressing.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, something like that happened in the '70s. There was just this sea change where, but like, where in the '60s things get more and more calcified towards big budgets and mm-hmm. epics and musicals and 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 more studio-driven stuff. And then eventually, audiences rejected all that, and there were all these massive failures. Yeah, and and then the '70s rolled around, and Bonnie and Clyde rolled around, and the Graduate rolled around, and then suddenly. They were giving the keys to these filmmakers. I can't. I can't see that happening a second time <laughs> in Hollywood because because the because the filmmakers they gave the, you know the artists they gave the keys to also blew up. Right. <laughs> like that's that's what uh, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls.
1: I have not. No.
0: It's a it's a really great uh, book by uh, Peter Biskin about sort of New Hollywood, and it follows sort of the careers of I think like maybe a dozen or so. Uh, filmmakers you know like Martin Scorsese and William Friedkin and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and sort of how they took over Hollywood briefly and then how they sort of went mad with power and everything self-destructed and then everything sort of went back to the 80s yeah. <laughs> you know everything sort of sunk back into itself on in the 80s with corporate interests and stuff but like I can't see that happening a second time and it seems like it seems like Hollywood is getting farther and farther away from that.
1: Yeah, it's a huge bummer to think about, which is why now, like, I, I feel every movie movie is either based off a comic book property or like a young adult series. Yeah, everything is this this pre like branded content in that way. Um, everything wants to be the next Twilight, I guess. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Or or the next Hunger Games now. Yeah. They were they were trying for the next Twilight for a while, and then I guess then now everyone wants to be the next Hunger Games because they saw yeah. more crossover appeal for for boys.
1: That's true. I guess I guess of the two, I'm glad that everyone is aping the Hunger Games because at least it's, I've only ever seen the first two movies. I've never read any of the books, but uh, from my experience, those do a much better job of having female characters in oh, them. Oh sure.
0: <laughs> sure, I, I think those hung, I think the Hunger Games movies are just fine. Yeah, I've talked about, I've talked about this on the on the podcast before. After seeing uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, because mm-hmm. um, Guardians of the Galaxy is a fun movie, it's something yeah. everyone went crazy for, it, and I enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. But it it actually it kind of felt like it felt more like like I don't know if you know the the director James Gunn. Um, I who, yeah. He did this movie called Slither, which is maybe right. the last super weird, idiosyncratic <laughs> movie to come out of Hollywood at, from an unknown filmmaker. Um, it was this universal horror movie and it's super gross and it's a comedy and it's really funny and it's got Nathan Fillion in it, and he's mm-hmm. basically doing the character from Fireflies <laughs> really dry uh kind of humor. And it's it's just a crazy weird movie, and it's and it's I always I look at that and I'm like, I can't think of and that was like 2006, I think. I can't think of a time after or I think it was 2005. I like after 2005, where a filmmaker who didn't have a built-in fan base was given uh was given that much money. I mean, it wasn't an expensive movie, but it was still a major studio movie and to make a film that's not based on an existing property yeah. <laughs> that has that kind of weird tone in it. So like his next movie super is is kind of an uninspired like, what if superheroes were real? They'd be crazy sort of a thing it's not bad but it's it's just not nearly as inspiring but like Guardians of the Galaxy all the things about it that are weird and funny and idiosyncratic and all that those are all like the James Gunn parts but then there's just so much bullshit I and they know. have to wade through there's so many scenes of just I don't know who the big bad guy in that movie is but he's just another like generically beefy space dude holding yeah. a MacGuffin like oh it sucks so much and like what I really fear is that like because all the movies that have big budgets And our sci-fi movies or fantasy movies or whatever are from existing properties that artists who want to make those films, they will have to first wade through, Mm -hmm. like, a requisite amount of corporate-owned lore. Yeah,
1: you have all these boxes that you have to check off before your movie can be greenlit, right? Like, yes, I will have a, a dumb MacGuffin plot. Yes, I will have blue beefy space dude who is just, like, weird and evil for no understandable reason in this film yes, I will have a strained romance between attractive male and female lead. Yeah, it's... it's...
0: And it's like, because... I I mean, I don't know. I'm excited. I love Ryan Johnson. I think he's a great filmmaker and he's doing the next Star Wars movie. And I'm like, I'm crossing my fingers like, shit, prove me wrong. (laughs) But at the same time... Like, that's honestly the only reason I'm excited about the new Star Wars movie is because I know I have to see that if I'm going to see the next one right. <laughs> that Ryan Johnson is directing.
1: Yeah, hey, maybe the new Star you know, if if the George Lucas tr- trilogy, the first one, if that, like, just completely blew up the way that movies and franchises get made, maybe the new ones will do the same thing and, and then we'll get – some original movies that aren't just all Marvel comics.
0: Who knows? Uh, it's, you know, yeah, <laughs> who knows is correct. I'm very skeptical, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that it is a possibility. Yeah. I mean, let's Ryan be optimistic. Johnson. I know, I know for a fact, Ryan Johnson has been in a position where he's been offered countless Hollywood projects. Um, because he, he, he's made critically acclaimed, uh, really cool looking like, uh, and, and just like kind of cult favorite films. Um, and he, you know, in, and he has opted instead in the time in between, you know, in between projects, instead of like doing the Duncan Jones thing where he, uh, what was that, what was that movie Duncan Jones made with Jake Gyllenhaal? Um. Nightcrawler? No, no, it's, it, it, a source code.
1: Oh, So oh. there was
0: this sci-fi movie that they just sort of handed to Duncan Jones, like, hey, you made Moon, uh, oh, do this. And yeah, it's just I sort of, that. it's, there's interesting parts of it, They're like, there are parts of the, of the art design and stuff that you're like, oh yeah, this is the, a real artist did this, but then it's also just kind of a dumb script. <laughs> and instead of just sort of taking the Hollywood, stu- you know, taking the that project and making money, he, he sort of just did Breaking Bad episodes. <laughs> like he found another outlet for like a really valid artistic filmmaking, um, which is kind of crazy that that exists now that it's just some filmmakers are now, you know, Martin Scorsese is going to direct the pilot to this TV show, and David Lynch is going to return to television. And why
1: not, yeah? David,
0: David Lynch, who hasn't made a who hasn't made a fictional film in you know in years and years and years, like he that's where he's going to go back to.
1: Well, I guess TV is kind of the place for that now, unfortunately, or maybe not unfortunately. Yeah,
0: I mean, again, it's it's uh, TV is like uh, it, it, that. TV is like novels in that. You know, like when you're watching a season of Mad Men, you're just sort of like in it, and you're just, you're kind of like, you're waiting a week for the next episode, but when you think about Mad Men, you're, you're at that place. Yeah. You've, you have this emotional continuity through the season, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen now? Oh, my God. Is, is Don going to self destruct what's going to happen? And like, <laughs> it, the same way one reads a novel. So maybe this will, yeah, this, this will be the new. I don't know. There, there are a lot of. People have been for a while now saying, like, television is better than film and da-da-da. And there's a lot of TV shows that have been really critically acclaimed that I think are all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not, i not – I'm still skeptical of that as well. Like, oh, like at, HBO is good, but also HBO just has to have a topless woman every episode.
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh. Like –
0: it, it, there's just oh god. There's just some. There's bullshit there too that I, that I really hate. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah. I mean, like you think about you think about like the most successful book adaptations, like the greatest films of all time that are you know based off books. Like they, they often, uh. They are, they're often, like, Jaws. <laughs> have you read the book Jaws? No,
1: but, you know, I have heard of all the crazy stuff that was in it that they just, for a good reason, did not put in the movie, right? Like, the Richard Dreyfus character apparently sleeps with yeah. um, Roy Scheider's wife. And, uh, I don't know, there's just, like, There's
0: pressure on the mayor from the mafia.
1: Oh, my God. I was not aware of that, but I'm not. I'm so glad that Spielberg (laughs) cut all of that. (laughs) Well, it's one
0: of those things where it's like Spielberg – like Jaws is one of the best-paced movies ever, Mm -hmm. right? Like Jaws is just about the wonderful sensation of getting to know these people – and being in this place, like, the first ten minutes of Jaws where the camera's just going through and there's this fucking parade going on in the background. And then there's, like, old, like, senior citizens going up to Chief Brody and complaining about the karate class, karateing oh, the fences.
1: Yeah, it's the best.
0: Like, yeah, just like, oh, it sets up the scene. And it's just, every scene is so vital. And every scene moves. And it it doesn't, there's not a single part where the movie sags. And it's just about the excitement and about the tension of Oh my God, is there another shark attack coming? And those there's a lot of there's a lot of uh things in that movie that are that films I feel do much better than books as far as spectacle goes. And I don't mean spectacle necessarily in terms of like big budget special effects, but like I've never read an action scene in a in a book that is nearly as exciting as like your average, like competently made right. action scene in a movie. Like yeah that sort of like the the scene in which the in scene in which the two fishermen have the have the holiday roast and mm-hmm. they put the hook on it like that scene playing out in a book it wouldn't be as fun like it wouldn't be that really great combination of funny and scary right. and and then it has that great denouement like oh, can we go home now and then it cuts right to all the fishermen and all the boats uh, in the next scene and they're all like throwing dynamite and stuff like i
1: know i, I guess cuz Books, unlike film or any visual media, are just not as well suited for that kind of action-oriented scene, right? Not that I'm saying books are are passive in any way, but the thing that I like about writing that um, movies kind of often are not able to capture is just being in a person's or several people's mind and, and this one like slice of their life. And just being able to fully just immerse yourself in that. And I think it's it's much harder for film just because there's just that extra barrier where you're watching a person who's on screen and you can't like follow them as closely as when you're just actually reading words on a page. But you're right that like just everything – and I, this is probably why people like watching movies and TV more than they like reading, right? Because it's just easier to, to visually yeah. take all of that in. And it's just much more engaging because I think that people are more responsive to that.
0: Yeah, and I, I think like exciting scenes in books. It is usually, yeah, exactly what you're saying where in a split second – someone's having a conversation and they have a revelation Mm -hmm. and and you're able to go back to the past into a memory they have and they're looking at this person right now and they're not looking at them the same way they were three seconds ago. Like, or just the previous sentence of dialogue. But the previous sentence of dialogue happened a page ago or two pages ago. And time is able to expand and contract in a really fluid way in books. Um, Because of that, you know, it can go through such an elaborate you know the way in real life like when you you have thoughts you don't think about them in words you just you just can ha- something can click for you and then suddenly everything is in focus <laughs> and that rarely is able to happen in movies because unless you're a really master filmmaker and you've already set up the audience like you can have that moment in the usual suspects right mm-hmm. where he's sipping his coffee and then he sees all of the things in the story you know that there were all the details Kevin Spacey was telling in the story around the office, and he realizes that it's all fake, and he drops the coffee cup. Um, but like that is the whole movie builds up to that. Whereas a book can have those moments all the time,
1: right? Or or a book can just it it just does a better job, I think, of of connecting to oh, I don't know. how am I going to say this. I I like that books can rely less on that kind of, like, shock moment for you where it can be this really slow kind of simmering build in the background. And there may not necessarily be that, like, boom moment of revelation. It just might be throughout the whole thing you're slowly becoming more aware of this person or or maybe, like, yourself as a person as you're reading this story. um, Just because the way that we read and, and process that information is a much I think, quieter, restrained way in general. Um, so that, that that is what I appreciate about reading. I, I appreciate this this contained way of telling a story because it just feels more intimate to me. Um, oh, yeah, I,
0: especially if it's a, a first person.
1: Yeah, although, you know, honestly, I, I very rarely read first person novels. I don't know if that's just because they're, I, I think maybe with, with um, more prestigious Novels, first person is considered like a lower form of writing. I get get the sense, yeah. um, I I, I've noticed that a lot of these like young adult books, for instance, are all kind of written in first person because it allows for much easier like audience insertion. Like, oh, this is just this is me, and I'm I'm reading this like fantasy. Whereas books that are written in the third person, they kind of force you more to empathize with this character and, and not necessarily just like put yourself in the story. You have to relate to this like complex human being that you're interacting with.
0: Sure. Um, I, oh, I, I guess what I was saying also applies. It, it, it's also third, 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 person omniscient. Like yeah. you can still get inside their thoughts without it being right. I guess first person is more when you were saying like you slowly like realizing things about this person or about yourself. I was thinking something like Lolita, mm-hmm. <laughs> like where the, where the narrator is unreliable, Right, and you you don't you don't start off you know you don't start off having a full idea of who this person is, but um, you know uh, unintentionally the 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 narrator sort of reveals themselves to you, mm-hmm. yeah, because um, they have this past, but they don't know, but you don't know the past or whatever until you find out the past or something like that.
1: Right, and that's something that that I I think books can do better than movies with with something like Lolita where the main character is obviously this just terrible human being right but you're you're in their brain basically for this in, the entire span of the story so you're kind of forced to i mean i'm sure that i i would hope that somebody reading Lolita doesn't support any of this Humbert Humbert's actions right but like you're right. you're you're forced to just be in that space with this terrible person and it's just I, I feel like you get much closer to that character than, at least in my experience than I ever have, just, like, watching a bad person on screen because it just feels like there's that much more layer of separation between me and what's happening on the film, whereas, like, when I'm reading a book, it's just right there. And um, it's just... I think it's just a great way to experience storytelling and, and it just makes you better at understanding... People, because you're just forced to confront all of the ugliness uh, in in like this really direct and uncut kind of way, um, although I mean uh, you know film can do do it just as well, but I think it's just it's so much easier in writing um, because there's just there's nothing there's no editing, no music, no crazy like visuals there to distract you it's just the words and and the people that are on the page
0: yeah I, it's it's it takes so much legwork in a film to pull off the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the film really, like the thrust of the film has to be that. Yeah. Uh, there, and f- yeah, I think I think that's the other thing is that novels and and literature can often easier, e- more easily be doing a lot of things at once. Mm-hmm. Um. Without without feeling like I feel like there's a lot of films that try to tackle something and then they try to tackle it very broadly in all sorts of different ways and they get into different characters, relationships and that, that don't necessarily tie to the main themes of the of the film, but they're like, especially like kind of prestigious like Oscar bait kind of movies mm-hmm. often feel kind of bloated in this way, but that's how it feels. It feels bloated um, and I think it's just because you're consuming it in one sitting it's one single experience as opposed to a world that you're sort of, uh, just sort of diving into and living in and like there's always in books information that you would never ever 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 get in a a movie. Like right. in in a movie in a movie the person walks into the office and the secretary says, Oh, someone's to see you in the office and then the person walks into their and then they walk in and then they talk to that person. Right. Or in a book, even if it's not about the secretary, it's not uncommon, like, they'd give a paragraph about who the secretary is mm-hmm. and what their background is and what they look like and what their relationship with the with their boss is and stuff like that. Like,
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely this idea, if, if I'm seeing it on screen, it must be relevant in some way. I think it's a lot harder to get away with these kind of – extra details in film just because like seeing it makes it feel significant. Whereas you can read, like you can read a 900 page novel that ha- contains all these details about all these characters and not necessarily like need to remember any of it or feel like any of it is significant.
0: Yeah. I, on the other hand, I've never read a book that has a good dance scene. <laughs> yeah, you know, like there, there's a lot of things in film that are just like there's no obviously, uh, unless you count like literally the book of a of a musical like with the note with the with the notation and the songs and all that like like there's no there's no musical books, um there's, there's there like avant garde there's a lot of avant garde film I mean I'm sure there's avant garde avant garde literature that I've just never read like I'm sure there's all sorts of you know. Writing out there that is, you know, non-narrative and mm-hmm. a lot, you know, more out on the edge, and I've just not exposed to it. But, um, like there, I've I've seen okay, so there's this movie I saw like a month ago or whatever, and I've been talking about it like every episode since. It's this short film called Outer Space, and it's uh it's a like a ten minute avant garde film, and it it takes footage from this uh, '70s horror movie uh, called The Entity. Um, and And it's it's just this scene out of context, a woman walks, uh, you know, creepy music is playing. A woman walks up to the house and then she opens the door and she goes in, but it's all in black and white. And the, all of the footage has been sort of distorted and damaged. Um, and whatever happens in the actual film, I don't know. I haven't seen the film that they take the scene from, but it's this, it, you can tell just from the opening shot that it's like the setup to a scare. Um, but the in the what outer space does is it like damages it. so you like see the film like kind of going off the reel and you see the the sprockets on the side of the the film strip and and the, the soundtrack gets damaged and there's like weird ghosting and there's there's all sorts of um, just uh, like artifacts on the film and scratches. And eventually, as the scene gets closer to whatever the scare is, it just goes totally insane, and everything's damaged, and you just hear distorted screaming and it's this insanely frightening uh experience to sit through um and it's totally without context there it doesn't give you any context it's not like it sets up a traditional horror scene and right. then and then it subverts it uh by going off the rails like it's it but it it's not. It's not like some Stan, Stan Brackage movies. I don't know if you've ever seen like a Stan Brackage movie. But yeah. he was like a he was like an avant garde filmmaker who, you know, he would draw on the film reel itself. He would scratch it and basically he was sort of questioning the medium as far as like is the medium what we see or is the medium the actual film strip? So he would do all these kind of weird things and it and but they're t- completely just symbolic like they're not representational of anything. They're non representational. Where this is so they're interesting to look at, but there's not really a lot of emotion behind them where this is like genuinely moving and scary and frightening. And, and I'm, you know, as, as you might be able to tell, I'm having a lot of trouble explaining why. Um, and I, this is an extreme example because it's, you know, an experimental film, but there are a lot of moments I've had in film. Uh, I mean, particularly because I'm a fan of horror films that are just unnerving and get under my skin and, and, I can't get out of my head and I can't properly explain why and it's – I rarely have that with books. Usually with books, like if I'm moved, if there's something that's really powerful, if there's a moment where like it freaks me out and I have to put the book down or I I just sort of have to pause and like catch my breath because something really traumatic happened in a book. Like I know – I could explain to someone what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's – I don't know if I've ever read a book where – I get an inexplicable feeling, uh, and maybe that's just because books are limited to words.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, you should read. You should read some Alice Munro. Then, yeah, um, because that that sensation that you're describing. I mean, I I think that I've definitely had maybe not the the fear part right. because I don't read a lot of horror stories, but just this sensation of like being moved in a way that feels like both inexplicable, but also kind of like it makes sense to you. Yeah, uh, I, I've definitely had that from not not in every book that I've read, but from authors that like really know how to shape words and narrative. That is an experience that I've had before. And it can be just as like um, I remember like uh, one of the first few times I, I ever went to California. I was reading Joan Didion and a lot of her um, essays are, are set in California and she just has this really strong way of describing the sensation of being in this state and this really kind of like ephemeral just out there kind of language and after I finished reading one of her essays I was kind of walking around in this weird daze for like hours because I, I recognized everything that she was describing and it just left me with this crazy sensation of like oh I've just read something really powerful and I don't even have the language to tell you why it was powerful. It's just in my brain in this way. Um, so it exists in books for sure. I think it's probably a lot harder to capture that because, I, I again, I think images can just be so much more immediately powerful to people. Um, but, but don't don't sell books so short here. You need to you need to read some Alice Munro and then come tell me. Yeah, I.
0: <laughs> that's fair.
1: Um.
0: That's, that's, yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, I am, I am, the reason I, I, I wanted you on other than just being friends with you online and knowing that you are a reader is because I know that you have like good taste in a film and you care about like film as an art or whatever, but you're primarily yes. like a reader. Yeah. And I, and I am, I care about books and stuff, but I'm primarily a, a film person. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely an aspect where, um, like as me as many, you know, uh, as much as we've talked about like the failings of book to film adaptations, like there's definitely part of me that that uh, I'm I I have a closer connection to that medium than
1: than, than the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's
0: so kind of like And I'm just more aware of it. I'm just
1: yeah, yeah. I, I sorry. Def- go ahead. No, no. I, I I definitely am well aware that my like ability to to talk about film is very very limited, just because. Um, I actually had a conversation with a friend about this a while ago where, like, you know, that decision point of saying, okay, I want to be a person who reads a lot of books for for a long time. I kind of thought that meant that I also – that that, like, prevented me from being the type of person who's seen a lot of movies. Like, I kind of had to pick – one or the other, and that's just what I would devote my time to. So I've read a lot, um, but I feel like my like film knowledge is just really lacking in a way that I, I often feel embarrassed about. Um, I mean, I've seen movies, right, and I enjoy them, but I, I've definitely not – I don't have this huge breadth of knowledge to draw from, whereas like with, with books, I, I feel that I do. Um, so I don't know. If, if I had had – You only
0: have so much time in your life, Sarah. <laughs>
1: I know I've been watching a lot more movies this year than I've been reading. It's, it's been a weird and like somewhat upsetting experience for me because I I feel kind of bad about it, but, um, it is interesting that, that I feel like when we're young, you kind of make that decision and that's just who you grow up to be. And and both are completely valid. It's just that now I, I find that I still connect more with reading than I do with film. So, oh, well,
0: sure. I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back to Harry Potter real quick. Yeah. Um, I don't like those movies at all.
1: <laughs> None of them. Not even the third one.
0: I no. I watched. Yeah, because we had we had an Alfonso Corona episode mm-hmm. uh, last year around this time, and so I went back and I watched the third one, remembering like, well, I remember the third one was good. Um, and I it, it was. So there's something about the novels. The thing, and this is this could just be totally. This I mean it is just what I brought to the novels and what I found interesting about them, but the main sort of point of entry I had as someone who doesn't really care about fantasy or magic or like it's just not it's just not my thing, it's not my milieu, but like I love that at least those first you know I read the first five books and I didn't read the sixth or the seventh, but um those first like several books they take place over the course of a school year right um and they have the feeling of the school year which is like there's something weird going on at the school we got to get to the bottom of it we're going to be going through but also we have to go to class and we have homework (laughs) yep and the feeling of being in school and just being like well this is what december during the school year feels like this is like right before winter break like this is what winter break during the school year feels like. This is what the start of the school year feels like. This is towards the end when we have exams and stuff. That's what that feels like. Like, that to me is, was such a strong point of entry that I really that I really responded to those books. It's weird. It's like, I would have liked Harry Potter more if they had gotten rid of the magic. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but like, the magic is definitely not the thing that I was really into. Sure. Um, and because of the necessities of time... You can't really get that feeling across in a movie, right? Because they just have to sort of rush from story beat to story beat, and there's not those kind of just moments in between. They those movies kind of just feel breathless to me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Especially in a way that's antithetical to the things that I like about those movies, yeah. or at least about that those, those stories.
1: Breathless is a really good way to describe it, uh, especially towards the end when they're adapting these like those books get up to like 900 pages long and you're just trying to f- cram sure, so sure. much story. Yeah. Um, so I've read all of them and you know, like I guess we both probably grew up with them, right? Like we basically aged. at. This yeah.
0: We're about the same age. They were, you went to a Harry Potter book, uh, book release party, right?
1: No, I, I've never done that. I, my sister did. Um, I did not, uh, but I, I read all of them. I loved all of them except towards the end when I was in high school and, and started to think that I was too cool to like these books. Um, but I still read them, so I was a hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> but
0: yeah,
1: it's I I just think that it's they're a really great like encapsulation of how to do movie to book to movie adaptations wrong and right because the first two are just these really boring line by line adaptations of the books that, that somehow turn the story about magic into like the dullest thing that you're just watching on play out on screen. I just remember seeing the first movie as a kid and being like, Oh, this is awful. What am I doing? Um and it wasn't until I think you had way
0: better taste that I don't I don't even like the first one. I I don't even like these movies. I loved it when I saw it as a kid. I think you had better taste in film than me.
1: Maybe I was just again mad that the book was better. I don't know. I just remember being bored by right. it. Um and it wasn't until the third one where finally there's a director who doesn't feel the need to like give me all of the same plot points as the story does, but just kind of like take the story and and run with it in his own way. That I actually thought that the movies became interesting as film. Um, I, I'd be curious to know why why you're not a fan of the the third Harry Potter movie. But I think is it Quran or Quran, I Alfonso Quran?
0: Quran? I, I I looked it up. I th- I always said I always said Quran, but apparently it's coron
1: coron Okay. Um. He like left this huge mark on that series, right? Where I feel like the movies that came after probably don't go as far as he did into just, like, whatever crazy theme I've decided, and I'm just going to ignore, like, the Harry Potter lore. But, like, all the subsequent Harry Potter movies like follow his exact same, like, color palette. Everything has that dark kind of look to it, whereas the first two were these really bright, like... And that's probably also why the first two movies are kind of boring, because it's just this very basic... Like color scheme to it and everything's like overly cheery and and kind of gross to look at. Um, but he, he was the one that ushered in like the dark (laughs) Harry Potter, which I think is much more interesting to look at. Um, but once, once the directors of those movies realized that they don't have to make these very like boringly faithful versions, um, I think that the series got a lot better. Until the end, which goes back to your breathless comment where they're trying to, like, again, cram all of this plot into, like, a two and a half hour film. And it just, you know, I blame Harry Potter for this whole idea of splitting up your final movie into two parts. I think that's the worst thing. Oh, Uh, that,
0: that, that, yep. That's the worst. Because that was very successful. And then now. That's what everyone
1: does. Yeah. It's just this really, like, uh, gross way of, telling a story where you front load all the setup in the first part of your movie. So there's like basically no climax. It's just all kind of putting everything into place. Right. So it's just very, this very kind of boring thing to watch where it feels like nothing is happening because you can just feel that everything is being moved along this chessboard and like nothing significant is going to occur. And then the second part is just like nonstop action, which can be very exhausting to watch. And I, I, just think apparently
0: the, the new Hobbit movie uh-huh. is like all epilogue. The,
1: the, the, the <laughs> most recent one. <laughs> what, you mean? What,
0: yeah. It's everything i read about it is that it's all epilogue and that like the actual main story of the Hobbit wraps up kind of early in it <laughs> and then nothing kind of happens for the next two hours. I mean,
1: that makes sense because that's again, this tiny little story that they've tried to expand over three movies. Like, yeah. Um, if you're
0: gonna do that, just the the one good thing about that with the Hobbit, though, I was I was on another podcast where we talked about the Hobbit. Um, my, all of my favorite parts of the Hobbit are during the first half of the book uh-huh. when it's all like fun little riddles and yeah. and Bilbo being antagonized and. All of that. And then once they actually get to the dragon, I don't care. Um, (laughs) So, like, I actually just saw the first Hobbit, and I got to see all my favorite parts of the book. And I was like, all right, cool. We're done.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm
0: not going to see any more of (laughs) them.
1: Yeah. I only ever saw the first one and and completely, like, lost interest in in continuing it. Because it's just, like, the the worst way to do that. The worst way to tell a story, just filling it out over nine hours or however long those movies are now. But...
0: It's so, just it's 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 a it's a combination of like corporate cowardice and like an <laughs> indulgent nerd. Yes. Uh and it's this perfect storm of terribleness.
1: Yep, the worst combination.
0: So I, I I was also curious. So one of the books I read this year was The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh-huh. Um, which was a really I actually I was I was finishing that as the thing in Ferguson happened. Mm. Like it was a really powerful book to read, especially at that moment in time. Um and so that that's a nonfiction book that was adapted into a film. Um, the biopic is very much based off of that book and Malcolm's own words. Um, uh, have, have you have you read the book slash seen the film?
1: No, I'm horrible. I haven't done either of those things.
0: Yeah, I I was afraid. I started. I bought Roots a long time ago, mm-hmm. and I I couldn't get into it. It was a little dry for me, and I was afraid that uh, you know this is also by Alex Haley. I was afraid it was it would be a little dry, but. Um, the really good thing about the autobiography of Malcolm X, other than the fact it's the autobiography of one of the most fascinating people of the 20th century, is that um, it's sort of it's very pre- it's 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 not in present tense, mm-hmm. but it's but it's very present in that when he talks about his childhood, he doesn't talk about it um, completely colored through like a you know, an educated minister of the nation of Islam. He talks about it as like, as if he's experiencing it. So you get to hear about all this time in like Harlem and running numbers and selling drugs and stealing and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's not as if like he's in, you know glorifying any of that. He certainly has like thoughts about that in retrospect about how he ended up there and, you know, and sort of how, you know, white, white supremacy built those systems and stuff like that. But like, he doesn't talk, as if he's giving a speech. Um, He talks in very simple, you know, uh, you know, just sort of uh, street language. And so it's actually a a very entertaining book because the way things are described fit where he was at that point in his life. Um, So it's, I I would recommend it. But at any rate, there's one thing that Spike Lee does that I'm fascinated by because it's a very reverential adaptation Mm -hmm. uh the 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 film film. malcolm x but there's one thing that there's one important change he makes uh to the life story (laughs) that both makes the film way way better but makes it it makes malcolm to it makes malcolm actually a less interesting character than he actually was which is malcolm when he was in he got he was in prison Um, basically he got caught, uh, robbing a house, but he got like, he got like double the time because he, his accomplice was a white woman and everyone like disapproved of his relationship with this white woman he had. Um, so he got like way more time than, than he would have gotten normally. Um, so he's in prison and, you know, he's just, at this point he's, uh, you know, he was very bright in school, but he dropped out like, uh, in middle school and, you know, he's uneducated. He doesn't read. Um, and his brother comes to him. His brother was one who was who converted to the nation of Islam and said, don't eat pork. Don't do this. Don't do that. You shouldn't do any of these things. And Malcolm – and he didn't tell him what it was about. He just said that uh, here's some advice for you. And Malcolm thought it was some sort of game. Like if he did all these things, then he would get sick and then he'd be able to be in you – know, he would be able to get – work at an easier prison or something like that. So he started – Doing all this, and then he started realizing he liked it. And then the next time he saw his brother, his brother explained the nation of Islam, mm-hmm. and that's when he converted to Islam. Um, and then once he converted to Islam, he uh, began uh, reading a dictionary. You know, he began, basically, what happened was he began reading books and he would write to uh, um, the brother Elijah Muhammad, the honorable uh, Elijah Muhammad, and he would be embarrassed about his terrible penmanship. So to practice his penmanship, he read through a dictionary and copied every page start to finish. Um, and that not only, uh, you know, helped his penmanship, that that was where he got his vocabulary from. Right. Um, and then, so that is the true story of Malcolm X. Or that's the story in the autobiography of Malcolm X. In the movie, there is a fictional character named Barnes who is a member of the nation of Islam who basically tells Malcolm everything he needs to know about it. And that's when Malcolm converts Mm -hmm. and he shows Malcolm the dictionary and he tells Malcolm to copy every page in the dictionary. And so it actually makes Malcolm a less self-sufficient character than he was in real life. But at the same time, the scenes with him are so good. And it's like the fate, what actually happened to Malcolm in prison was all interior. It was all interior and it was, it was all just himself, and it wasn't cinematic, you know? Yeah. It's not cinematic to watch someone on his own decide to copy pages out of a dictionary. But there's an amazing scene in the movie Malcolm X where Barnes shows him a dictionary, and he shows him the definition of black and all of these negative connotations that go with black. And he shows him the definition of white, and he shows him all the positive connotations that go with white. And he's teaching them sort of about how just even the language is rooted against them. And it's this brilliant scene because the way the scene is shot, it's just shooting an actual dictionary. Like Spike Lee just goes through a real dictionary and it shows. And then it's like, well, at one point, Malcolm was like, wait a second, this book was written by a white person. And he flips over and then it just shows the full copyright page. So, you know, it's a real fucking dictionary right. <laughs> where all these like horrific things are like black soiled, you know, like devoid of light hostile, like white, pure, without evil intent, <laughs> you know, like, and it's this amazing scene, but it's completely made up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, and it made me think, I I don't know how I feel about this. Genuine, Generally, how I feel about most films, like about documentaries, is that filmmakers have a responsibility to make the best film they can and to not slander anyone. But other than that, they don't they can misrepresent things, do you feel like adaptations of true stories have a certain uh they have a certain responsibility to depict the facts depict the events as they happened
1: huh i mean i I feel like I don't have an immediate i don't know how I feel about that. I'm sure that there are tons of examples where I could fall. On either side like I, the the example that you just gave right i could totally understand why a director would want to kind of rewrite history in that way because it's a much more clearly powerful way to to explain this this change in a man's life than than what may have really happened yeah. um like another example that i can think of is uh, i recently rewatched the social network the david fincher movie which is You know, based off of a nonfiction book about the creation of Facebook and the social network takes so many liberties with the details of Mark Zuckerberg's real life, including just like completely, you know, it has this framing notion of the whole reason that Mark Zuckerberg made Facebook was because a girl dumped him and he was like pissed about it. Yeah. Whereas in real life, you know, this whole time he's at Harvard and stuff, he he's in a relationship with the woman he eventually married, who also played a huge part in creating Facebook. So, like, there's just just like complete misrepresentation of what's really going on here, and like just completely changing the the kind of motivation that this guy may have felt. But that I'm sure I don't know how Mark Zuckerberg feels in real life. Maybe he's mad about that. But for me, it was completely fine because. It's almost like this isn't a real person that I'm watching. It's just maybe this guy has the yeah. same same name as a real person, but it's... I, I think I think it helps
0: that the social network has that all that Aaron Sorkin dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> it helps it. View, it helps me view it not as a depiction of actual event, and also David Fincher's style of directing. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. If if it's clear that. Um this is kind of a fictional representation of, of reality. I, I feel like it's it's probably forgivable, um, although I'm sure the people who are actually being depicted would have something completely different to say. Uh, you know, it, it depends, right? Like, I know that when Lincoln came out, the the Spielberg Lincoln, I guess last year, there were a lot of people who were um, probably justifiably upset that he the movie depicts this kind of really rosy idea of, of the Emancipation Proclamation and, and and just, you know, all of that in a way that is historically kind of inaccurate and continues this tradition of us kind of whitewashing history and making us feel a little bit better about some of the, the grosser parts of American history. Um, so I, I guess it just depends, right, on, on, yeah. on what has what changed and, and like the, the reason for changing it and, and how that change kind of fits into... Culture. Um, and also, you know, another thing to consider is probably that the movie version is what pe- most people are going to know. So if you're going to really misrepresent history in some way, like, I hope that your misrepresentation is not just a flagrant, like, retelling. Like, if Spike Lee had just – had made Malcolm X, like, convert to Judaism instead, yeah. instead of Islam, you know, like, something like that where you're just going to completely change the meaning
0: of well, – that that's such an extreme example. That would be, like, an art film. Like, that would be a weird Michael <laughs> yeah. Haneke, Lars von Trier sort of provocation. Right, <laughs> Right. Like, 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 I actually love to see a movie like that, like a biopic <laughs> that of a well-known figure that, like, halfway through makes sense, but then all of a sudden, like in the '70s, it's like Paul McCartney becomes a bank robber.
1: Right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this like, is real life.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't like. Uh, so yeah. So part of me definitely agrees with you that, like, I mean, especially if it, it if it's involved with something like, are you whitewashing this story so it's e- it's easier to sell to right. white audiences, like. That, to me, is, like, never justifiable. Like, that's just gross. But at the same time, it, it makes me frustrated that that the, the onus of uh, poor media literacy is on the artist. Like, I, like... Okay, so documentary. Like, no one should ever view a documentary as anything other than something created by a person and therefore subjective. Um... And so there are there are filmmakers who play around with this a lot. Like there are like Errol Morris. Right. You know, like and stuff like that. Like and there's this idea that Oh, okay, well, okay, so to take an example that isn't important at all, the King of Kong. Have you seen that movie?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> no.
0: Okay, so The King of Kong is a great fun documentary. It's like a sports movie about this total asshole named Billy Mitchell. And he's – and he's like king shit of the classic arcade scene because he was the first person to get a perfect score in Pac-Man. And everyone <laughs> worships Billy Mitchell and he has his own line of hot sauces and he just looks like a douche because he's always wearing a tie and he has this – he just he has this 80s haircut. And he just looks like uh, – he just looks like bad guy. Like he looks like um, from Die Hard, uh, <laughs> the – the uh, the asshole you, you, you remember that guy which which asshole there are a lot of assholes that's true the the guy who's like Bubby I want to help you out like who's pretending to know John McCain oh um, who
1: gets shot yeah oh god oh god is I was literally just talking to people about this guy <laughs> what is his name like classic eighties guy right. Yeah. Uh um it's like Ellis or
0: something. Ellis. Okay, yeah, it's I think it's Ellis. Okay. So anyway, that guy. like Billy Mitchell just looks and acts like Ellis. <laughs> um, and then there's this guy named Steve Weavy. And Steve Weavy is shown as like he's just this chemistry teacher and he was a drummer but then something happened and he couldn't be and it's like oh and then we got pregnant so he had to take a job teaching and he was always destined for greatness but he never got his shot. Um, and then he discovers that there's some Twin galaxies thing going on, and he wants to get the world record in Donkey Kong. <laughs> so he gets a Donkey Kong machine, he sets it up in his garage, and he gets the world record in Donkey Kong. And then there's all this backhanded politics about like, oh, it didn't count. Like the video could have been faked, is what someone says. And then a, and then another video shows up with a higher score, and then it looks like it was faked. So it sets. It's a very classic sports story of the underdog and the, uh, trying to upset the establishment. Um, But it's all bullshit because Steve Wiebe is part of the establishment and Billy Mitchell isn't that big of an asshole. Right. And basically the filmmakers completely just misrepresented, like, the events and the time things happened um, and everything. Like, it's totally misrepresentative of the actual story, which is way less interesting, but it's in favor of creating this sort of sports narrative. Now, this isn't a thing that, like, the people knowing the truth – about the, the history of the high score on Donkey Kong. Like, that's not actually important, you know? But, so, like, I feel, you know, like, but m- the average person who watches this movie will, because of the way it's presented, will not walk away thinking that they will not walk away knowing that they had the story grossly misrepresented to them. Right. Like- so, is that unethical? Or is, or should, or should people just have more, Skepticism towards things that claim to be documentary
1: um well, the documentary thing is a real kind of sticking point for me because if if you want to just tell a, a story that is kind of fudging facts, why why not just make it into like why why bother making it into a documentary you know unless I've,
0: I think there's a lot of things that i mean I've, I think a documentary is its own form, and mm-hmm. a documentary you're capturing this footage and it's a different feeling than. Like, I'm they were right. actually, with sure. Ben Stiller, they were going to do a uh, a fictional remake of King of Kong, where Ben Stiller, I would assume, would be the Billy Mitchell character. Because mm-hmm. that's, like, the character he's played in 15 other movies. Sure. Um But, like, they, and I don't think that ever ended up going through, but, like, it's just a different, it's just a different sort of thing. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, it's definitely different if it's a documentary. and If right. that's what you're claiming to be. But at the same time that's also the the fudging between documentary and fiction is also a has been a common practice. Sure. In film like since the 70s. Yeah,
1: I mean I don't know if there there's a clear kind of I I, I do think that in general people should be more skeptical about what what whatever they like consume and it shouldn't just immediately believe that everything that they see is is the truth. Like I think that is is definitely correct. But also, I mean, I don't know. In this case, if if you're not actually like crazily misrepresenting these people and to a point where it's actually doing harm to their reputations, then it's probably fine. Um, I think, again, it just it really depends. And and I feel like my opinion is so tenuous on this that I could easily be persuaded. I mean, it's just it's it's an interesting thought exercise, though I don't I don't really know what if there even is a correct answer to that, right? Except that maybe people no. should question things more. Maybe that's just the correct answer, like question everything.
0: <laughs> right, but but at the, 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 the same time, you are totally correct that most people um, who aren't studying history and who aren't reading books about it, they're going to assume the story of the Emancipation Proclamation is like what they saw in Lincoln, right? And you and as a filmmaker making a mainstream Hollywood movie that millions and millions of people are gonna see, you should be aware of that right I guess um, so it's yeah it's you can't put the onus entirely on the audience either.
1: yeah I think the the answer to that at least the the like um, maybe not so much like this Donkey Kong <laughs> example, but like something that that kind of affects our culture, like the the Lincoln version, I guess a real solution to that is just to, to have a more diversity of voices behind these films, because it makes sense that someone like Spielberg would kind like, given his cultural background would would represent it in that way. Um, Versus if you had somebody from like, you know, a a minority director or something, um, maybe they would have a different take on this part of American history that maybe would be more accurate and, and would hopefully kind of affect the way that we as a culture at large kind of view that part of our history so maybe both those things can exist in the same world we just need more of the second yeah. one um, I,
0: I I always whenever and the whenever the uh, whenever like the anger gets up about like you know this this movie this the cast for this upcoming hotly anticipated movie came uh, was announced and it's all white people and so like my response is always like you can't sit around waiting for Christopher Nolan to start casting more black people you have to start getting more black people in Christopher Nolan roles. You have to start getting more queer people in Christopher Nolan roles, you know, like
1: it's,
0: it's always, the answer is always don't expect these white people to try to make movies that depict anything but white experience.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully like as, as we just become better as a society with that kind of representation, a lot of these, these problems of like adapting nonfiction works will, will kind of fall away because you know, it, it won't be filtered. I mean, and then also the people who are writing the nonfiction too, right? It's all coming from the same yeah. voice, basically, or, or like the same way of representing history. So that that's something that I think over time will hopefully just get better. And then I won't have to answer this question about, oh, you know, how, how correct should should these things be? Because yeah. they'll just be better at it.
0: I, I, I So getting away from documentaries, though, I do feel that based on a true story – at this point, people should, should just yeah. assume that that means l- <laughs> as little as possible, right? Yeah. And if they look it up and it turns out to be very faithful, then you can go, "Oh, that's cool." But like, you that should not be your starting point. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't like. It's. It's also. It's not. It's not even. You know, adaptations of uh, of world events or nonfiction. Or it's like, for example, the book I'm reading right now, Clockers. That was That's a Spike Lee film uh, that he made in, like, uh, 96 or something. And it was originally uh, a Martin Scorsese film. And so Clockers, it goes back and forth between this um, this white uh, homicide detective who's sort of, he's near retirement and he's sort of having a crisis of faith. This, this last case he's on is, like, sort of giving him a crisis of faith and making him question a lot of the sort of assumptions he had about sort of his, the brotherhood of police and stuff like that. And the, and it goes back and forth between that and strike this like a uh, nineteen-year-old uh, drug dealer who's sort of rising up in the ranks and not sure and sort of, it's sort of dawning on him he's also becoming very skeptical of his like system and just realizing that like the person he looked up to the most is just living on borrowed time and that there's really no future for him at all and he doesn't know where to go from there and it's sort of he's stuck in the system and. So, as a movie, like it had to be very long to get to give equal time to both parts uh, because there's just so many events that go on for both of them. So, when Scorsese was adapting it, um, it was supposed to be mostly about the homicide detective, mm-hmm. and then when Spike Lee took over the project, <laughs> he re- he rewrote it and he made it mostly about Strike, the the drug dealer. Right. And it's just like it's such a perfect example of just well, that's what Scorsese is interested in, mm-hmm. and that's what Spike Lee is interested in. And that doesn't mean that Scorsese is wrong or that Spike Lee is wrong. It's just like it's clearly those two are attracted to different characters in this book. Right. Uh and that's honestly it's one of the most fast faci- it's one of the most astounding things about that show about The Wire is that it's is that it is able to dedicate so much uh it's able to commit so much to telling the stories of both sides um yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel like lopsided despite the fact that I'm sure it had a mostly white, you know, production staff and
1: mm-hmm. writing staff
0: yeah, yeah, like I I know for a fact it wasn't all writing. It was not you know, there it was mixed. Mm. But But, like, definitely, it's that had to be a conscious effort from them.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: As as newspaper reporters, uh, like, I know a lot of the writers on there, like, David Simon was a newspaper reporter um, who, he wrote a nonfiction book called Homicide a Year on the Killing Streets that was, is really good, by the way, if you haven't read that. Um, And it's, and it's, uh, he spent a year with the Baltimore Homicide, you know. Uh, the homicide department, but he also wrote a book called the corner where he spent like a year on like a drug corner. And he was following the lives of these different, you know, uh, drug users and dealers and people who live there and stuff like that. And it, it seems like that must've been extremely important to him. And he had to make that like the point of the project. And, you know, we're lucky that he was able to sell that idea to HBO, but, <laughs> but like I'm sure uh, Chris Rock. Uh, has a new movie that's out and he's been doing interviews which is always a wonderful thing cuz Chris <laughs> Rock is the best interviewer yeah. in the world and he was he's telling these stories about like if he had to make you know his movies about a black comedian being interviewed by the New York Times and he's like and he was talking about like if i had make this with a major studio i would have to explain to them and and like fight to 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 convince them that there are black people who read the New York Times <laughs> <laughs> like like that's how much I would have to fight like to get this made is I would have to justify that much um so yeah it's it's crazy, but yeah, definitely diverse voices uh an artists is always the I think the the way out of sort of the rut of just endless white, straight people in movies.
1: yeah, it'll fix so many problems
0: oh, yeah oh uh, God, I really want to see Selma. I can't wait to see Selma.
1: Yeah, that'll be that'll be really interesting. I, I keep I keep thinking that Selma will kind of be like it'll get nominated for Best Picture, and it'll be kind of like a think piece generating moment where like, oh, given like Ferguson and Eric Garner and just all this st- stupid bullshit that's happening in our country right now, that this movie will like take on. At least in my brain, this is what I'm imagining, right? Yeah. I'm just, like, thinking of all of the, the articles that will be written about what does is, what is Selma's nomination for Best Picture say about us as a country or something. <laughs> um, I can guarantee you that somebody is already, like, working on that right now,
0: so. My, my the, you know, Selma, generally any film that's a prestige piece, that's a... That's like coming out this time of year and takes place during a different era about a historically important event. Like, I'm, I'm instantly extremely skeptical, mm-hmm. um, just because that that is sort of already a machine. that right. Those movies come out of them It's a different machine, and often it's a it's a more interesting machine than the ones that the uh, Captain America twos come out of. <laughs> but it's still a machine, and I, and I rarely am surprised by them. But I've heard a lot from people who are the kind of people who are skeptical about prestige pictures and stuff saying, like, this is actually a really good depiction of how grassroots movements start and not, like, turning it into one sort of saint at the center of it who accomplished everything, but about how masses of people get together and and form a movement.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, That's good to hear. I I am really interested in seeing that.
0: Um. I, I... I, I want to ask you one more, more question. Sure. And that is, what is the Citizen Kane of books? Now, what <laughs> I want to I ask you, uh, so I've read many books that I would love to see made into movies. Mm-hmm. I almost never have the thought, and I want to know what this means, I see a movie and I want to see that made into a book.
1: Yeah. that is like, I don't know that I've necessarily ever had that thought either, because I think my... My default is to just kind of – because I, I just read more than I see – than I watch movies, so my default is just to kind of assume that a book is going to be better – maybe not – Or you'll,
0: you'll get more out of it. Yeah,
1: better is not the right word. I, right, getting more out of it is the more accurate right, way to say that. But um, something maybe like – I think – a movie like Under the Skin, for instance, and I'm saying this because I was just talking about it recently. Um, that could be pretty interesting as as a book.
0: So that's a book adaptation.
1: That's right, but but the book is not this right. He made a lot of
0: yes. The book the book explains what is happening, yeah, and the movie does not.
1: Right. I think that a adaptation of the movie that that maintains that kind of like. We're not going to fill you in on any of these details kind of mode would be really yeah. interesting. Um, my
0: I, I was thinking about this. my vote for this was a very similar take, which is, have you seen the movie upstream color? yes, yes. Up, i I would love to read a book that made me feel the way upstream i I felt watching upstream color, right. Yeah, that sort of really enigmatic, just glimpsing moments of things. Like, I'm sure there's plenty of books that have been written in this style that I've just, you know, I just haven't read. But, like, it's it's so impressionistic. Um, and it's it's like Under the Skin. I mean, it's not as alienating as Under the Skin. Right. Uh, well, I guess for some some people it is. But, like, it's not as off-putting. And you, you're you actually dealing with, like, human beings mm-hmm. whose motivations are clear and stuff. So it's, it's not as alienating as Under the Skin, as a movie, but it's, it's definitely not stopping to explain anything. Um, and it's sort of about the pieces coming together in your head and pieces not coming together. They're like, I, you know, upstream colors are my favorite movies ever. And there's still a lot about it that I, I have an interpretation, you know, my own personal interpretation. And we had a, we had an episode actually about, we had an episode where we talked about Room Two Thirty Seven and Upstream Color. I
1: listened to that one; it was really great. I remember. Oh, good!
0: <laughs> that's why that's one of my favorite ones because because yeah, everyone had a different interpretation of what right. Upstream Color was about, um, which obviously ties back into Room Two Thirty Seven. So, like, uh, like I have in my own head what Room Two what Upstream Color is about, but there's still parts of it I have no idea. Yeah, and but I like that. I like those edges and because they're evocative and they're interesting. Um, and they make me think and they're just... And I'd love to read a book in the style that is very impressionistic and, you know, pieces are coming together, but... Uh, and it maybe had, like, sort of that that sort of otherworldly sci-fi element to it. Um, Yeah, I don't... Like, I. I'm kind of... I'm interested in movie novelizations just because they are the strangest form of marketing. <laughs> <laughs> like, the idea of Someone like buying, like, I because I, I did this all the time as a kid. I like bought the book, the novelization of Godzilla, and I bought the novelization <laughs> of Independence Day, oh, man. and I would read them. And they're so weird. It's a weird thing. Yeah, like the the novelization of Godzilla is in first person for Matthew Broderick's character, Oof. and the and the premise. Yeah, no, it gets better. The premise is that this is not a book he's writing about the most important ecological disaster. Of, <laughs> so, like, this is a nonfiction book in his universe uh-huh. about, like, the problems of radiation and – because he's the scientist who was, you know, studying all those worms at Chernobyl. Um, but because it's first person, he has to explain all these scenes that he wasn't present at. Oh my god! (laughs) So he has to like say like I was later told that, (laughs) or or he'll be like I later saw security camera footage that depicted. (laughs) It's really funny the justification that goes on, but it's I don't know. There's also the infamous uh, ET novelization Uh that is inside ET's head the whole time. What? (laughs) Oh my god! You got it. I think there's like a cracked article on it or whatever. But ET is so it's in ET's head. So, and I think it's limited to his perspective. I don't think you actually get it from Elliot's perspective at all. Um, and he is... It's its ambiguous, but it's kind of implied that he is sexually attracted to Elliot's mom. Oh. <laughs> Gross. It, but, like, in a... It's not... not—it—it it, it, The way it's written is just... It's even weirder, because it's sensual. It's not sexual, but that's uh-huh. even weirder, because he's fucking ET, and he's the... It's a kids like the, movie. <laughs> the, it's a well, yeah. A, it's a kids movie, and just thinking about those feelings in that context of that movie is weird. But also, like the triumph of ET is that ET is not a cute, cuddly alien. He's the grossest looking <laughs> alien. Right. Like that, if that movie, if he, if instead of instead of ET looking like he did, he looked like an Ewok, that movie would be insufferable. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he is so off-putting looking, it ends up counterbalancing a lot of the schmaltziness of it. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in novelizations, but I, they don't really happen. (laughs) Like they only happen as part of a marketing machine. They don't happen because there's an author who saw under the skin and like films happen all the time where a filmmaker reads a book and is like obsessed with this book and they want to make this, put this book in reality, but it never, ever happens where there's just an author who's obsessed with a movie and they want, like the most that will happen is they do something that's an homage or that, you know, is a pastiche of that, but your place in that genre or with those story elements. But man, although that's I, a, what, that's a, one of these days I'm going to write the, I'm going to write the novelization of upstream color and computer <laughs> chess. Those are the two, the two movies that I think about the most.
1: I mean, maybe you, you could be the next, uh, what's her name? E.L. James. Cause that's basically what she did.
0: Well, I, I don't know about E.L. James. Who's E.L. James?
1: She wrote the, um, 50 shades of gray books.
0: Oh okay so hers was like the fan fiction
1: of Twilight right yeah so so that's kind of... well i guess it's not a novelization necessarily cuz it's it's taking certain liberties like if you want if you want to
0: talk about a uh, film uh, book adaptation uh also fan films is another <laughs> obsession of mine <laughs> those those are slightly different but uh like if you re- if you watch like cuz most of them are not book adaptations but there is a Friday the 13th young adult series oh my God. that had four books, and there is a fan film that is an adaptation of one of those books, and it's actually one of the best film films I've ever seen, because <laughs> unlike most fan films that are just obsessed with uh, the characters and the, the special effects, like because of the necessities of a young adult novel where you can't describe the gory details of every murder... Like there's a plot with character arcs, and those are actually secretly my favorite parts of slasher movies <laughs> <laughs> because I'm because I'm weird and I oh man I have my own theory about slasher movies. Um, but at any rate, um, Sarah Argudale, I don't think I said your name actually. That's fine. <laughs> during this episode, they'll, they'll see it. It's on the episode title. They'll see. Thank you so much for being on.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, I uh, I enjoyed this a lot, and now I got to go uh, read some Alice Munro. Yay! Um, <laughs> and uh, what was what was the Joan Didion? Uh,
1: Slushing Towards Bethlehem is the one that I read and, and really loved.
0: Sweet, I got I I just got a big. My birthday and Christmas are like very close together, so I just got a big Amazon gift card. Nice and uh, and you can get pretty not any used book, but you can get most used books for a little over four dollars. I know it's great. So I've. I, I I've been going hog wild, going through like the modern library, like list of top hundred books, and like trying to figure out which ones I wanted to get and stuff. And um, I gotta I gotta look up some of that Alice Munro uh, and uh, Joan Didion. I was gonna read. I wanted to read the short story "Bear Over the Mountain." What's What's that called?
1: Yeah, "Bear Came Over the Mountain."
0: "Bear Came Over the Mountain" because that was adapted by Sarah Polly. Right, was away from her. Uh, but I, I didn't get a chance to read it. In you know, time.
1: I haven't read that either, but I, I'm sure I would not be disappointed in it. So if you check it out before me, let me know. I
0: think it's online. Like, I think the New Yorker website has it online. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. um, anyway, uh, thank you so much. Do you have anything to plug?
1: Uh, oh, God, no. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs>
0: Sorry. Well, you're, uh, you're, on, you're on Twitter, though.
1: That's true. I guess if people want to follow me on Twitter, that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> at sarahargadale.twitter.com wait no twitter.com slash sarahargadale there we go
0: all right cool next, thank you uh, and then I guess the next time we'll uh, be talking to you guys uh, it will be me and Jim back again in the same room and we'll be doing a Robert Altman episode which I'm very excited about um, so bye